Welcome to Place Matters, a podcast about the intersection of race, place, and poverty, where we explore the belief that the path towards ending inequity and promoting prosperity is through the work of holistic neighborhood development. Welcome to the next installment of our series on FCS's three pillars. This series will focus on the pillar of mixed income housing. I'm Sean Duncan, the director of training and consulting for FCS and the host for Place Matters. It is common to hear people talk about the housing crisis facing our cities. Complaints about rising costs and concerns about gentrification are heard regularly. What is less common is to hear people talking about one of the main reasons why we are facing this crisis, exclusionary zoning. Almost 75% of the residential land in the United States is zoned so that only single family homes can be built there. With this level of restriction, the available supply stays low as demand soars. One crucial way to not only meet the volume of the demand, but to also address the affordable access is by promoting more multifamily housing and the zoning changes that would allow for that. This is not without significant controversy, however. There are many fears supported by myths about the impacts of multifamily housing. Joining me today to talk about why multifamily housing is good for everyone is FCS Senior Director of Community Development, Marvin Nesbitt, and a special guest, Jim Brooks, who is Purpose-Built Communities Vice President of Housing and Community Development. Well, in a single family housing dominated landscape or city like Atlanta, how do we build a case? Because there's a lot of pushback on it right now. How do we build a case for more zoning uh, around multifamily developments? Well, uh, I mean, just to jump into that, I think that the cities where we're seeing right now improvement in, you know, more availability of affordable housing, mm-hmm. diverse housing types, uh, more diverse neighborhoods. A great example is there's some very interesting stuff going on in Minneapolis okay. where they basically, this is this will an oversimplification, but they basically outlawed single family zoning. Mm. Mm. And what what that really means is in in single family areas you can now have duplexes, triplexes, and quads. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a great solution. Mm-hmm. In other words. Um, that still feels single family in a mm-hmm. way, right? It's mm-hmm. not a big multifamily complex, right? But you're starting to increase some density. You get, you know, different affordability of units, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, I think that that's at least a beginning point to talk in Atlanta, and in some neighborhoods they're doing this. But mm-hmm. I think it's a beginning point to talk about how do we have a more diverse and affordable housing stock, mm-hmm. and how does that actually enhance your single family neighborhood. Okay. Right. Yeah. And how do we, and that's a piece I'm curious about, because I think for FCSs of the world, it's an easy argument because we want to sure. see more affordability. Right. And for people who are struggling to afford housing, it's an easy argument for them, but there's a number of neighborhoods in Atlanta and other cities that would push back pretty hard about inclusive zoning. Uh, how do you make a case to them to say it actually would make your single family neighborhood better if you had a, a more diverse stock of housing in your well, I mean, let's face it, the healthiest neighborhoods are the most diverse neighborhoods. I mm-hmm. mean, that's not just c- true in Atlanta. It is, you know, mm-hmm. nationwide and probably around the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
think about it this way. Um, if we've got a, f- a mix of affordable housing stock, right, mm-hmm. within within a neighborhood, that means that means not just people of a certain income level live there, but, you know, the folks who work in the service economy, mm-hmm. you know, work in restaurants, who work in um, hospitality and that kind of stuff can live nearby as well. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a good thing. Those folks, you know, that, that they contribute their the money economy. to the economy yeah. too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, their, their money's just as green as anybody else's, mm-hmm. right? They're shopping at that grocery store. Um, and the other thing too is, and this is not just a housing issue, it's really a, a social issue. You know, we find that folks have a healthier lifestyle if they grow up in a diverse neighborhood. Then mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you develop you know, relationships with people mm-hmm. who are not at the very same income level you are, or the mm-hmm. very same race or ethnicity or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or religion that you may be, right? Yeah. And that's a, that's a good thing. We mm-hmm. need that. And, mm-hmm. but housing is a great place to start that, Yeah. right? Yeah. If you've got diverse housing stock at a variety of income levels, it, it helps to create that kind of diversity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, Jim, you know, we have tons and tons of research that shows the benefit of healthy mixed income mm-hmm. uh, development, uh, yeah. which also include That's obviously right. multi multifamily. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the challenge is that we don't do a, a great job at, at teaching or touting the benefits of, of yeah, multifamily right. work yep. out in the public. The yeah, public right. only sees the bad, right, yeah. or hear the bad. That's the only thing that runs on the news, right? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well, and, and people people take that and, and they run with they it and, and, form with it all of, yeah. it and just assume that it's the case, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I'm a big advocate for smaller multifamily, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. Because I think that uh, I think multifamily gets a bad rap mm-hmm. because, and this you know goes to some of the other things that we may talk about today, but I think it gets a bad rap because most people's mindset about multifamily are large that's right you know mm-hmm. pr- often affordable apartment complexes like a 100% affordable exactly large, right. massive right. and development it's, and it's yep. you know it's monolithic mm-hmm. and it doesn't fit in necessarily to the neighborhood you know the the, the you know the the extreme version of it being a public housing development right, right? right i mean we used to you know i've worked all over the united states and a lot of the work i've done is you know redevelopment of older public housing sites I remember when we used to fly into a place like Chicago, mm-hmm. from the plane you could see what was wrong. Yeah. In other oh, words, yeah, yeah. you can look from the <laughs> air and go, oh, well, look at that. That yeah, doesn't, yeah. you know, you see this the you know, single obvious. family neighborhood, duplexes, quads, single family homes, little shops, and then all of a sudden there's, you know, a, an 800 unit complex, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a super block in the middle of it, mm-hmm. right? And so... If that's most people's image of multifamily, of course multifamily gets a bad yeah, rap. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, multifamily used to be primarily, you know, quads and duplexes and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. You know, it it and and I I not that not that there's not a, a place in the landscape and in the market for, you know, larger multifamily developments. But what's wrong with them being 50 units instead mm-hmm. of 200 units? Yeah. Well, I right? think that's a, uh, you I think you again you make a great point. I think, you know, because if you ask you know, 10 people to give you a, a, a example of, of multifamily, mm-hmm. they're probably going to say, <laughs> you know, uh, at least ten, uh, eight out of the 10 are probably going to say uh, 200 units or more. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, because people right. don't think about duplexes and consider because duplexes mm-hmm. are that's considered a multifamily, multifamily yeah. property, yeah. right? right? Yeah. Or they don't think condos, uh, small condo communities, or mm-hmm. they don't think about... Uh, townhome communities or see those as as multifamily, right? Yeah. And so I think as we we've we've kind of missed mm-hmm. in terms of you know help educating the public on 
what multifamily really is and what the real benefits of multifamily. Because yeah. even in in in, in under resourced communities where you do put multifamily, mm-hmm. where they typically end yeah, up, they typically, yeah. you all That's right. property values typically go right up behind it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is a a benefit that most people don't, you know, they just think if you bring in large multifamily mm-hmm. uh, to my neighborhood yeah. that you're going to decrease my property True. value. Well, it's, right. it's been proven that that doesn't happen even yeah. in under-resourced neighborhoods. Well, yeah. if you look at, for example, a lot of the work that I did in Chicago, because I helped sort of I helped manage the Chicago Housing Authority Plan for Transformation, okay. right? So that was a massive redevelopment of, you know, all the giant public housing. Mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of it in that State Street corridor, you know, mm-hmm. sort of between the Dan Ryan and State yeah. Street on the south side. And part of the way we were able to get neighborhood acceptance of, you know, doing all this replacement housing was we used what was the vernacular in Chicago. In other words, Chicago had neighborhoods full of quads mm-hmm, and triplexes mm-hmm. and sixes and that yeah. kind of stuff. And when you started using that vernacular, mm-hmm. right, but it was multifamily housing, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't... It wasn't a 15-story high-rise. Yeah, that's right. Next to right? another 15-story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next door to a four-story building, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that. so so it's it, it, it does come from, I mean, I'm a city planner by training. So mm-hmm. to me, it, it still comes out of that, you know, what makes sense from a neighborhood planning standpoint? Yeah. You know, what 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 kind of housing do we need here? What what is mm-hmm. What makes sense in terms of... You know, reinforcing the fabric of the neighborhood, the architecture yeah. of the neighborhood, its walkability, and those kinds of things. And to me, that's a lens of you're trying to build healthy places, not yes. just solve a housing that's problem. Right. That's we're right. We're just trying Absolutely. to solve a housing problem. We build the 15-story pieces to solve that, but we create all the neighborhood issues and the place-based issues yeah. when we exactly do that. Exactly right. Well, when I when I joined Purpose-Built Communities earlier this year, one of the things I was very deliberate about in terms of my job title was that I was not just you know, the vice president in charge of housing, I wanted it to be housing and community development. Mm, and mm-hmm. I was deliberate about that for mm. that reason because mm. it all has to come out of that context, yeah, yeah. right? That's right. Um, That's right. And the other reason for that too is, you know, multifamily housing, as we were just talking about, you know, as Marvin mentioned, it's, it's, it, it gets stigmatized, right? Mm-hmm. Because, oh, all the poor people live over, over yes. in that complex over there, yep. right? Yep. And all the not poor people, which then translates into all the good people, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. live over here, right? Well, if you've got multifamily scattered throughout the community in smaller complexes or mm-hmm. smaller buildings, you eliminate that issue. Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. Then they're just neighbors. Yeah. They're not, oh, the folks that live in that mm-hmm. Section 8 apartment prop- right. property over there, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, then the subsidy becomes invisible, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Just because that's a quadplex or a six... If that landlord happens to take Section Eight vouchers, you don't necessarily really know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just a yeah, and that is woven into the fabric of design That's that right. looks natural and it fits versus like this. It's clear. I mean, so when we travel for work, like every time I'm in a new city, I'm like, take me on a tour of the neighborhood where you're focusing. Yeah. Like walk me around and see it, and it's, uh, and every city is like, oh, it's really clear where that where the public housing building is. Just the shape of it, the <laughs> look at it, the style of it. You're like, and you even see not just the architecture itself, but even the placement of it and what's around it is like, oh man, like how did, maybe we did see and we did it anyway, but it's like, how did we not see back then to not develop according to these Well, a lot of it came out of, you know, sort of a lot of that public housing that was built in the 50s and 60s came out of that, uh, you know, tower in the park sort of design approach where it was, 
you didn't care what the rest of the city looked like around it. You were creating this, mm-hmm. you know, this monolithic thing that sat in the middle of mm-hmm. su- what supposedly was green space, which yeah. turned out to be a no man's yeah, land, yeah. <laughs> right? So, so hopefully we've gotten past yeah, that. So. Yeah, there's a sociologist that came up with the formula like 20 years ago. It's called the uh, index of concentrated extremes, and like, and when I think about that, that makes me think about the extreme of wealth or the extreme of poverty. And like, it's the concentration of those things that ends up creating these divisions that we're dealing with. I think in my own growth, like growing up in a, like a, when I said neighborhood growing up, I'm in a subdivision, like a subdivision developed outside of the city. Right. Uh, And so like, it was just uh, natural to think like what's normal is the one acre kind of, or or half acre single family plot. And that's, and that's like the desirable thing. And that had to come to like appreciate like well why is density a good thing, and we begin to think about how much isolation exists in our cities because of this single family design. Like we are designing isolation, and we're designing, and then to have a culture where there's so many diseases of depression and isolation that comes from like maybe we we've designed cities to create mental health crises when mm-hmm. we live yeah. these kind of isolated places. Yeah, like density when, can break up a social reality. A, absolutely, level. a great example yeah. would be. I mean, if you look at most of our better urban areas, let's say pre-World War II, pre the explosion of the car mm-hmm. and the, the interstate mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. right? That vernacular is there. Yeah. You know, for example, yeah. I, I've, I've lived in Grant Park since 1985. Okay. okay. Now, I have a really nice restored Victorian mm-hmm. single family home, mm-hmm. but... I can look in my neighbor's window if I want to, right? In other words, they're they're right next to me. If you're his neighbor, he doesn't. He's just saying he could. He could. Just to be clear, everybody, I don't do that. But, but, you know, literally their house is, you know, 20 feet away from my house, right? And if I walk out on my front porch, I can see all my neighbor's front porches Mm. and I can wave to folks. And, Mm. you know, there was, there's a way to design those things so that, it makes sense in an urban... Even know, having front porches. Yes, right, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because we've abandoned the street to the cars. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. as an urban planner, this you know, we, we talk about the street all the time mm. because the street, you know, people need to own the street, not yeah. cars. Back yeah. to that. I love that. One of the interesting things that they've done in many, you know, so, so everybody's studying what's happening in Minneapolis, right, mm-hmm. with this idea of getting rid of, you know, monolithic single-family zoning. Mm-hmm. But when you really study what's making the uptick in people starting to develop quads and duplexes and stuff like that, the other thing that they did that was really smart, they eliminated parking minimums. Oh, wow. Man, if Jeff Delp, our economic development director, listens to the episode, he will send you love mail after this. Because, <laughs> be so excited. And that's a huge <laughs> thing because part of what's been driving up the cost of multifamily mm-hmm. and how it gets cited and why it has to be so big mm-hmm. and all that is because you got to pay for all this structured parking yeah. or these giant parking lots. Yeah. Well, when you eliminate those parking minimums, you are now encouraging a much more urban type of product. You can have smaller units, less units, right? Mm-hmm. Um and they actually, you know, what they're saying is that's driving a lot of the new smaller multifamily development in mm. Minneapolis is because they've, they've eliminated that as well, oh, wow. right? So it's those yeah. things in tandem. Yeah, that's uh, what I've been curious together. about. I've heard about the getting away with exclusionary zoning, but, I'm, but my curiosity was, are, are they including proactive measures that would yes. push towards a healthier? Yeah, and yeah. Oh, for example, they're, they're encouraging increased density along transit corridors. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting that, and of course, it's all been adopted as part of an overall, as, as a city's overall comprehensive plan. So this really does come down to, you know, municipal zoning and mm-hmm. land use plans and that kind of stuff. 
But in Minneapolis, they've got the phenomenon now where people will go, well, wait a minute, that's only a six-story building that you're proposing there. You really ought to put a 10-story building there. Wow. You know, that's like, what? That's not, that's not the normal course of that conversation. Right, yeah. right? but that, that shows that you can change people's thinking about this stuff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But you have to do it in a very uh, you know, proactive way, a very you know, uh, and, and a way that makes, that respects the folks who live in those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about Litech projects as, as oh, okay. a particular example of, and let's, let's, uh, let's say that's low income housing tax credits yes. is what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Just, so, well, we'll have our acronym dictionary will be published shortly afterwards. That's correct. All the acronyms we use will, <laughs> will be. And so they're really, I mean, we've, Recently done one. They're very important uh, in the kind of work that we do. They get uh, critiqued because they they disproportionately end up in low income communities already, which we would agree that 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 kind of happens. But what would you say to the middle income neighborhood about like, hey, this you know, let's not just nimby this and get this over in, in, in those poor areas already. Like, what would you say? Hey, we're we're going to do this LIHTC project and we're going to weave it into this middle income middle class neighborhood. People are pushing back. If you're in that community town hall meeting and you're building a case, say why this would be great for your kid's school, why this would be great for this neighborhood, what would you what would you point to? Well, I guess there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, you know, the low income housing tax credit program is probably the best and most available program out there to subsidize affordable rental housing. I mm-hmm. mean, there's there's other stuff out there, but it's mm-hmm. it's been around for many many years. It's been successful. And it's probably fostered the development of more affordable rental housing than any other program. Oh, wow. Right? Wow. Um, so it's it's a good program. But like anything else, it's the devil's in the detail, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. One of the things we encourage at Purpose Built is, and we any of the multifamily developers we work with and the communities that we support, we always say, look, it shouldn't be, if you're going to do a development and you're going to have tax credits involved, how about having 25% of that set aside as non-subsidized mm-hmm. housing, and mm-hmm. that's mixed within the buildings or the complex so that, again, you're getting away from the idea that that is, somebody can look at that and say, oh, that's 100%, 100% low yep. income, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of the reasons to have that in a neighborhood, you know, investment is investment. Mm-hmm. Again, I think scale's important, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's, it's a tough sell to, to tell a neighborhood, hey, we're going to develop 500 units of low-income housing yeah. in your neighborhood. Yeah. yeah, you know that's a that's a pretty tough sell. Yeah, unfortunately, developers are generally set up to do that. In other words, yeah. developers they like don't think repetition. Fives and tens, they right? think in fifties and hundreds. Yeah, they're thinking portfolio. Yeah, and it's like, well, if I'm going to build 80 units, it'd be much more efficient for me to have, you know, 400 units. Yeah, nearby because then in terms of scale. With property management and maintenance mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, it's it's better for me. Mm. But it may not be better for the neighborhood. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, the other thing is, you know, at the end of the day, if you've got that kind of investment, it also mm-hmm. invests in infrastructure, it invests in services. If you're trying to draw a grocery store or all yeah. of those kinds of things, you know, those mm-hmm. folks count rooftops. Yeah, yeah. Right? They yeah. count residences. Um, mm. And, you know, low-income families shop at the... Grocery yep. store just as much as yeah, anybody yeah. else, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think there are ways to explain to to neighborhoods why it makes some sense. But again, yeah. that's one of the reasons we push so hard for mixed income is we think that when you do a holistic neighborhood development, mm. you should think about what else has to be developed in the neighborhood as well. Yep. Not just it's not just about housing. It really is about that's community right. development. If you're going to develop 80 units of 
uh, of affordable rental there. You know, what, you know, we're working with communities all across the United States where we help them figure out, we're doing studies on um, available vacant land, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. within their community and doing some real urban planning around that to say, mm-hmm. let's not just let that happen mm-hmm. anecdotally. Let's really have a strategy for the involving neighbors, mm-hmm. right, to talk about those things, not mm-hmm. just, you know, the nonprofit going off in a corner, but talking with the neighborhood about, okay, we're identifying this vacant land. Here's some strategies we're thinking about. Let's get the neighborhood's buy-in on that. Mm-hmm. You know, affordable housing is good, but, oh, maybe over here, rather than affordable housing, we're trying to develop, you know, uh, you know, a new market mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or here we should really be thinking about for sale housing because we need some affordable for sale yeah. in this neighborhood. Yeah. Right? I, I think you, know, you, you are touching on a very, very important part. And I think while the, the LATEC program has been very successful in, uh, in facilitating the development of uh, affordable units over the years, one of the things it has not done is uh, facilitated the development of a comprehensive uh, approach right. to multifamily in not just under-resourced neighborhoods, mm-hmm. but also in more resource neighborhoods. There is no real incentives mm-hmm. for developers to even consider mm-hmm. moving into uh, a neighborhood that's uh, more resourced than others, right? And so, you know, and this is a, a, probably a question I, I have for you is how do we how what can be done from a policy standpoint hmm. to help incentivize question. developers to consider uh, LIHTC deals and developments in more uh, neighborhoods that are, are of opportunity? Well, I, I mean, it's a it's a two word answer. It's land cost. Oh, wow. I mean, yep. you know, in other words, if you it comes down to city policy or municipal policy. Uh, it comes down to also what the housing finance agency is, their scoring criteria in their qualified allocation plan, right? Um, and what they're, how they're scoring and rating applications. But for example, you know, and one of the reasons I'm big on, you know, strategically looking at and land banking, mm-hmm. right, to provide affordability is if you were able to make a parcel of land available to a developer in a, you know, let's call it a very vibrant neighborhood, but that land was very inexpensive because that cost was being kept down because you wanted to see affordable housing developed there, you'd get developers interested, right? Well, land cost is often the big, let's face it, the difference between building a multifamily development in the poorest neighborhood in Atlanta versus building a multifamily development in the most expensive neighborhood in Atlanta, it ain't the construction cost. Mm. Same contractor, mm-hmm. right? Same supply, yeah. drywall's drywall, yeah. right? Um, that's not the cost differential. The cost differential is almost always land, mm. right? Mm. Um, and so if you, and by using land trusts or land banks um, and, you know, strategic acquisition with, you know, foundations, whether it's the, you know, charitable organizations or um, nonprofits or, you know, municipal organizations finding a strategic way to, you know, acquire a land bank yeah. 
in yeah. those neighborhoods. But you run into some NIMBY issues there too. Because yeah. you'll have folks who will, well, yeah. I don't want you to, I don't want you yeah. land yeah. bank and land in my neighborhood because you're going to build a, mm-hmm. a cheap apartment complex. Hey guys, just want to jump in here real quick with an invitation. If you want to bring FCS's principles and practices to your neighborhood, we can take you and your local partners through a two-year multi-sector cohort process that we call City Shapers. Right now, this effort is being partially funded by Lilly Endowment, Inc., so it is a great time to jump in. We have taken three communities through this process so far and would love to bring it to your neighborhood next. Contact us today to learn more at fcsministries.org. Let's kind of shift gears a little bit sure. and think about like renters uh, as a population versus homeowners. Uh, and there's a lot of, and, and we work with this when we're doing community-based work and, and people saying, well, when we're doing this, should we really involve the apartment complex? Cause they're, you know, they're renters, they're not owners. So there's kind of these assumptions of they're, they're less involved, they're more transient. Uh, is that, is that myth or even if it, and if it is accurate, is that just a nature of like bad design or how do we maybe break that up to where people begin to see, you know, like renter or owner, they were a neighbor and resident of this community that needs to be involved in the community development work. Like how do you lean into that renter versus owner kind of mindset of, of residents? Yeah, I think a lot of what we have tried to do, at least in things that I've worked on, not just with Purpose Built, but in the past is try and create really robust community organizations, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, not just homeowners associations, yeah. right? Yeah. Because that's another way of segregating folks, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I get that there's a, an identity of interest there, but when you're starting to create a robust community organization that inv- involves everybody who lives in the community, then your identity is about the community, not about the house you live in. Yeah, right? I love that. And that's a, that's a really important distinction to make mm-hmm. is because then you're valued as a member of the community. And my voice, you know, maybe maybe I might feel a little less transient, mm-hmm. right? If, maybe I'm willing to stay a little right, longer. Right, right, and, if and invest this myself yeah. in this community. You know, I may be a renter just for who knows what reason. You know, mm-hmm. I just got the job here and I just moved here. Maybe I'm looking to buy a place. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's all I can afford right now. But you know, maybe five years from now, I I may own a home in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. How this neighborhood treats me might make a difference. Determine there. whether or not, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I was like, wow, wow, this is a robust neighborhood, a great community organization. They listen to me. I'm able to go to the YMCA here. My mm. kids are in the school right over here. I belong to this church. Yeah, you know, the, the fabric is good here. Yeah. And, and they value me even though I don't own a home, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, especially as it relates to, to low-income renters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, for centuries, right, They've never been invited to the table. Right. Yeah. When you think yeah. of low income, when if you're thinking especially uh, public housing renters, mm-hmm. they've never been invited to the table for conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And we still we still deal with that today, right? It's it's hard and difficult for us to get uh, developers and other mm-hmm. uh, folks in the space to understand the importance right. of inviting neighbors to the table, renters to the table, because what you're trying to do is to help people to understand where their value lies, right? And help understand they can be a part of this process, right? Mm-hmm. But if they're never invited to the table, right? They never understand their value. They never understand how they can be a part of the process. 
and they can never understand what opportunities are exist to them inside of these these communities mm-hmm. that are being designed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think we we have a whole historical oh, yeah. uh, perspective that we kind of that gets lost, right? Yeah. And that yeah. people ignore and mm-hmm. and uh, that we're fighting against uh, mm-hmm. uh, as well. And which is why people in other neighborhoods, when they think of these large multifamily or low income mm-hmm. uh, developments coming to their neighborhood, mm-hmm. they're thinking about what they see on television, what they yep. hear from other uh, people in the neighborhood. And they're not thinking about, hey, these are people who actually pay rent just like you or shop yep. at the same grocery stores right. that you shop. Mm-hmm. You know, they're thinking about the negative. And so how do we, the, the bigger question is, how do we change the perspective yep. of folks yeah, if we can change the, the perspective crack, of right? when we see those larger developments and some of the problems that come with them, the assumption becomes the kind of people who need affordable are the ones who create problems versus like it's the design of the way that community was built to function that's create and so there's a the, the the blame and shame ends up at the at the feet of individual yeah. people versus the way we've designed the 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 complex or the or the neighborhood to work or not work actually that's for right. them. Um, and to right. say like this is not a matter of blaming shaming people of a certain income level. Like well, if we design differently, right. we build differently, we'll have different results. And if you, yep. in, in when you look at any community development strategy uh, that you've been involved in, there's an assessment process. Mm-hmm. And every one of those individuals that are being surveyed, they tell you that they want to be a part of a good neighborhood. They mm-hmm. want to be a part of the mm-hmm. neighborhood. So they want the exact same benefit of living in a good, yeah. healthy neighborhood that you want. Anybody. Problem yeah. is, we never invite them to be. Mm. Yeah, if you don't think... Mm. If you don't think low-income families value the exact same things, right, then you're missing the point. But that's yeah. right. I, I think it's really important to that, – that idea of community involvement and integration, really valuing people regardless of where they live is, is incredibly important because at the end of the day, your kids are all in the same school together, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you're, you're, you know, you're dealing with the same traffic issues and, you know, it's mm-hmm. like it's, you've got yeah. a lot in common – more in common than you probably think that you do, right. Right? right? And if you find those places where you can gather the community together and start those kinds of dialogues, it really starts to break some walls mm-hmm. down. And this is from the resident perspective. So if we shift to like the developer perspective, I mean, you guys have both worked with a whole host of different types of developers over the years in your work in housing. What makes for a better developer? It's not just about what they build, right? I mean, is, is there a, is there a healthy de- healthier development partner when it comes, whether it's LITEC or other multifamily things that are being built, what kind of characteristics do we look for? And this is the kind of development partner we want doing this work with us. Well, I'll tell you, I I, I say this all the time. I I get asked that question. Yeah. I, I, I love developers who are, who realize that they can be socially conscious Mm. and still make money yeah. being developed. It's not an either or. Yeah. It doesn't have to be an either or. And there are some developers out there who who have done good work because they realize that, hey, uh, you know what? I can be socially conscious. And, you know, from what I what Marvin is able to see, mm-hmm. they're also doing pretty well financially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I I will say this. I would say most of the let's say, larger multifamily, affordable multifamily developers that work around the United States mm-hmm. um, are 
extraordinarily hardworking and creative p- folks. I mean, they could, look, they could be off doing whatever kind of development they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the low-income housing development is more moderate of moderate rental development because there's so many layers of financing involved and subsidies and federal regulations and all that kind of stuff. It's incredibly complex and difficult to do, mm. okay? Um, and so, you know, my hat's off to folks who are good at that, mm-hmm. right? They, they, they are motivated by more than just making money, mm-hmm. right? But there is another tier above that of those who really have a, a, a desire to make more than just housing, mm-hmm. but to, you know, placemaking is yeah. something I feel strongly yeah. about, that, yeah. th- that they get that they are about trying to improve the fabric of the neighborhood, that mm-hmm. they're invested. Another thing, too, is what I look for when you ask, you know, what are, what are the better, better characteristics or mm-hmm. best practices of a good developer? Mm-hmm. Developers that I feel are invested long-term in the neighborhood. They're not just yeah. there to knock that housing out and then go back to... to Groundbreak you know, and ribbon cut. Yeah, and, and then they're out yeah, of there, yeah, right? Yeah. So the folks that are really invested long-term. One of the things that we talk about a lot in the business and also at Purpose Built is we focus so much on getting the housing developed, but the real long-term health of that hmm. development um, and its place in the community and the neighborhood is all about property management and maintenance long-term of Mm. that community. That's where the rubber really meets the road. And when you see, you know, really robust property management, you know, proactive maintenance, keeping the property up, making sure that the residents are, you know, well cared for and that kind of stuff, that's, that makes the biggest difference long-term, um, for, for those communities. For, for, uh, I'll give you a great example. One of the things that we encourage very strongly, and this is very much at the heart of the model for purpose-built communities, because we believe in, you know, supportive services and resident services going in tandem, right? Mm-hmm. The best affordable housing developers have a supportive services arm working hand-in-hand with property management, right? Wow, okay. Because yeah. property managers, property managers are supposed to know their residents. I might point out the smaller the complex, the easier it is. You know, in other words, if if I'm managing 60 units, I promise you, I know where, you know, I know Ms. Johnson and Ms. Jones and Mr. Mr. Mm -hmm. Smith, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm managing 600 units, Mm -hmm. it's a little harder to do that, right? But if you've got a really good resident services or supportive services uh, function that's attached to property management, they're working in tandem with the property manager go, oh, you know what? I understand that, you know, Ms. Johnson just lost her job. Maybe we can, you know, get her involved yeah, in this yeah. program or, or you know, any any number of issues that might pop yeah. up. Hmm. Um, you know, having those things hand in hand with property management make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Those are the best developers, yeah. right? Those are the ones that are really making a difference in their communities, right? That they, because they are part of the community. They didn't just build the housing and walk away. Mm-hmm. Is there anything, so final question, is there anything from the design side that can, so, well, let me back up with this. So, so Pamela is our neighborhood engagement director, uh, and she will smack you, uh, maybe literally or maybe figuratively. <laughs> okay, fair enough. If you call our, our, our current uh, multi-unit project Haven, if you call it an apartment complex, she's like, it's going to be an apartment community. And so we've even placed a couple of folks like in a couple of the units to create community among the residents and to make sure those residents stay connected to the neighborhood at large. And so we're being very intentional about that. But I'm curious about from different uh, multi-projects you've seen, is there something in the way that it's designed that gets it more 
integrated into the community, that it's built in, that you've seen, like if, if, if they're shaped in this kind of way, they tend to be more apartment communities versus apartment complexes, right? Or is there anything you've seen from that side of thing that makes a, makes a difference? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, again, uh, you know, from a, from an urban planning standpoint, it does start from, you know, site planning, architecture, those sorts of things. In other words, what makes sense within the context of the neighborhood, mm. right? Mm -hmm. If you create something that doesn't look like anything else in the neighborhood, yeah. you've failed, yeah. right? In other words, there's nothing that says you can't do taller buildings or, you know, as many units as, as it makes sense to, to do, but how about putting them in the context of, you know, the block pattern of that, that neighborhood, the density of that neighborhood, the architecture of that neighborhood, and you know, maybe making space for some of those other things we like to see in neighborhoods. Is there green space? Is there a place for the kids to play? Mm -hmm. um, is transportation access good? Have we dealt with parking in a, uh, you know, an unobtrusive way where it's not a sea of cars and then, oh, there's the building the back there back somewhere, there. right? Yeah, interesting, yeah. Um, so the more we do to make multifamily housing fit into the neighborhood from a design and planning standpoint, hmm you immediately signal that it should be accepted as part of the neighborhood, mm -hmm. that it's not some monolithic thing that's sitting over there that, you know, mm -hmm. that, that doesn't fit into the context. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and the subtle psychological thing is then you don't, you realize that the people who live there also fit in. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. You right. don't look at the place and go, well, that place looks out of place. So those people must be out of place. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why would you say things yeah, about Haven I, the way it works? That yeah, I, you know, and I, I think you know, first of all, yeah, Jim, you you did a great job of uh, of really expounding on you know my my thought around socially conscious and socially connected developers, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 to this question, Sean, I, uh, that you just asked, uh, those the, those types of developers when they are thinking of design, right? They're taken in the context that you know, the context of the, of the neighborhood, right? They're taking that into consideration. They're thinking about the rich history and traditions right. of that neighborhood. Mm. They're thinking about the people who, who live in that neighborhood and, and, and what they desire in terms of design and mm. what's, what, what they value. Uh, that's being considered in, in that design process, right? So they're not just coming in with some, some boilerplate design that yeah. they're dropping into a neighborhood. Yeah. They're actually thinking about the people who live there. They're thinking about the history, what that neighborhood has been in the past and what it meant to the people who live there, uh, who may have fought for the struggle, yeah. the struggle right, right. Yeah. To, to, to move the neighborhood along. And they are designing to all of that data that they're collecting in that analysis, that uh, process of analyzing that rich history and that the past, mm. right? And, and, and so, um, you know, it, 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 that when you do that, you don't end up with just that one big box that just mm -hmm. stands out that people in the neighborhood can't connect to and can't feel that this, is, this was built uh, for them, mm. right? And so they, they, stay, they stay away, mm. right? And just to reinforce that very quickly... One of the things that we've used often when we've worked in areas where we're redeveloping, where we're taking down massive public housing mm -hmm. developments, mm -hmm. one of our planner's tricks is 
what did the street grid look like before they built the public housing? Oh, fascinating. Right? In other words, find me the Sanborn map or the street grid from 1940 for this neighborhood, and let's put that back. Wow. Wow. Right? Because if you restore that pedestrian street grid, it immediately tells you the size and types of housing that you should be having Mm. on these blocks, right? It, it brings it much down to a much more down to a neighborhood and an yeah. industrial scale. And yeah. it just feels complete. If you look at some of the stuff we did in Chicago, huh. it just looks so complete. The idea yeah. that those massive high rises come down and now there are these nice Chicago scale neighborhood blocks that yeah. people are happy to work, walk around. That's right. Is, is just makes me happy. Yeah. And it makes me think about even looking, look at the current street grid, like get, get on Google earth, like look yeah. down at it and go, what was this designed to say? To which group of people? Who belongs where? What tree lines, railroad tracks, or street lines have been cut off like on purpose? You know, one of the things we'll say around here is that uh, your neighborhood is working perfectly, as in it was designed to do exactly what it's doing. The streets, the all of that, right? And so when we're when you're bumping up against pain points in your neighborhood, like it was designed to do this. Can we redesign it to do better? Right. To do That's differently? Right. To right. Be That's flourishing. A good point. That's a very yeah. good point. Well, it's a delight to sit at the table with the expertise that you guys bring. So thank you for participating in this conversation. Oh, sure. Thanks, Sean. Really I enjoyed wonderful. it very much. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Jan. The best way to learn about our housing work and everything else we do is to come and see it for yourself. We love hosting guests in our neighborhood and at FCS. Coming March of 2024, we will be hosting a two-day immersive event that we simply call Open House. Come, meet our team, see the work, and walk the neighborhood. To register, go to fcsministries.org slash openhouse. Place Matters is produced by Focused Community Strategies, whose mission is to partner with under-resourced neighborhoods to provide innovative and holistic development that produces flourishing communities and God's shalom. Place Matters is hosted by FCS's training and consulting team. If you'd like to inquire about our training and consulting services, please reach out to us via our website or find us on LinkedIn and social media. This information can be found in your show notes. If you'd like to watch these episodes, the video can be found on our YouTube channel. And if you did like this episode, please share it on social media. Your support means a lot to us. The show was edited by Tim Rose with music by Eric North. Special thanks to David Park and Becca Klein at FCS for their work in organizing and recording these sessions. And we would like to say thanks to our partner, Lily Endowment Incorporated, whose Thriving Congregations grant has made this podcast possible. Mm-hmm.